Do you want to become a better hockey player this summer with Paul Vincent Hockey? Since 1972, Paul Vincent, currently the head skills instructor of the Florida Panthers, has been developing NHL and college hockey players. Paul Vincent stands by his saying, there is always room for player development. Players such as Patrick Kane, Jonathan Taves, Matt Grizzlick, Patrick Sharp, Adam Oates, and many more have trained with Coach Vincent and his staff and have outstanding results. Join Paul Vincent this summer at one of his four Massachusetts locations, Canton, Saugus, Middleton, and Falmouth on Cape Cod. Registration is now open for 2022 camps. To reserve your spot today, go to pvhockey.com or call 978-807-4070. That's pvhockey.com or call 978-807-4070. Paul Vincent is ready to get back to work this summer. Are you? Welcome to New England Hockey Journal's RinkWise Podcast, the podcast for serious hockey players and their supporters to help further their development and navigate their way throughout their hockey careers. And now, here is your host, New England Hockey Journal's Kirk Ludicky. Welcome to the New England Hockey Journal's RinkWise Podcast. I am your host, Kirk Ludicky. I am joined here in Milton today by Matt Cater, and we have a special guest today, a man that is well known to many of the listening audience. That is Pierre Maguire, longtime coach and broadcaster, analyst, and most recently he was the senior vice president of player development for the Ottawa Senators. He is joining us via phone. Well, he is out on location doing, beating the pavement, hitting the ground. And uh, Pierre, we're glad to have you. Welcome to the RinkWise podcast. My pleasure, Kurt. Good to visit with you and Matt. Outstanding. So it's great to have you on here because you have so many connections to the area. Uh, we know you're you're you know Canadian, but you you spent a lot of time in New Jersey. You played college hockey down here. You you at one time coached the Hartford Whalers. Uh, you've got a son that came up through the prep ranks and played at Belmont Hill, and and now is playing college hockey. So you've got a lot of valuable uh, insights to share with the listeners, and we're looking forward to kind of telling your story and hearing what you have to say. Well, okay, let's get after it. <laughs> All right, well, I'm gonna I'm pitching over to Matt, and he's gonna cue you up here. Uh, Pierre, thanks for coming on. Uh, so you were born in New Jersey, but you grew up in Montreal. How did you end up up in Montreal from New Jersey? Um, well, my mother's French-Canadian, and so she was from there. My father uh, started a business in Montreal when I was extremely young, and uh, we moved up there probably when I was four or five years old. And what did what was your introduction into hockey? My first ever NHL game, my grandfather brought me to 1966 at Old Madison Square Garden, the Montreal Canadiens against the New York Rangers. And what I remember from that, I was only five years old, but what I remember, I still remember today extremely well. The smoke in the rink, the smell of the popcorn, and the noise that the puck made when it hit the boards on a shot wide. I couldn't believe how just everything came together. And I I was addicted, Matt, right from that point on being around hockey and obviously as a kid growing up in Montreal the Canadians were overwhelmingly good in those days and you know I had a chance to see the 71 team Jean Beliveau's last Stanley Cup had a chance to watch you know Guy Lafleur play for the Quebec Ramparts uh, against the Montreal Junior Canadians when in the Quebec Major Junior I mean there's so many things I remember growing up in Montreal but it was always around the excellence of the Montreal Canadians that's what I remember the most. Yeah, I mean they were they were a dynasty, and it certainly had to be inspiring to you as a, as a young player. So, how did you follow the path in youth hockey? For people that aren't familiar, back then, how did it at work when you were a young hockey player in Montreal, and 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 how did you develop uh, through the ranks? Well, you played for your town team um, first. It would start with house league in your town, and I grew up in the town of Mount Royal. I eventually moved to Westmount, which is another town in, in Montreal. But I started in TMR, Town of Mount Royal, and uh, played in the house league and then was fortunate enough to get called up to play on the inner city team. Um, and so it started from there. And then I went to a school by the name of Lower Canada College, which is a prep school in Montreal. At that point, it was only all boys. And uh, I played hockey there um, and football there. And uh, 
you know, things went really well. But it all started in the Catamount Royal for me. And, and basically, Kurt, it started in the House League and then moved up to the Inner City League. And then eventually, uh, I moved down to West Mount and started playing in the Inner City League there and uh, played for my local prep school or high school. So you ended up uh, kind of get your love of hockey around the Canadians and, and being in Montreal. Uh, but your family moved back to New Jersey uh, when you were in high school. Well, I moved there. I was recruited to a school by the name of Bergen Catholic. Oh, okay. My mother and my brother and my sister stayed in Montreal for a few more years. Um, I, they moved down completely when I was in college. So I, I actually went to Bergen Catholic. My, my brother, Regan, he was uh, two classes behind me. But uh, he was an excellent track runner. So we both went to this amazing high school in New Jersey called Bergen Catholic. And to this day, I'm just so fortunate to have gone there. I, I have so many great friends. And I played for a high school football coach there by the name of Tony Karsich, uh, who's a living legend in the state of New Jersey. And Coach Karsich really helped me uh, understand how important it is to compete the importance of character, um, how to overcome adversity. I, I'm just so grateful for the time I spent at that school in particular. And it, uh, it, it sets you up then to go play college hockey in the state of New York at Hobart. Uh, understand you're a defenseman. How did you end up there? It's pretty interesting. I was actually going to go to St. Lawrence University. Um, mm-hmm. I had been recruited to St. Lawrence uh, to play hockey, not football. And uh, I wanted to play football and hockey in college, and you could do that at that time in the late 1970s, early 1980s. And the coach that recruited me there, Leon Abbott, he got replaced in the late spring at St. Lawrence. And so what happened was um, (laughs) Bill Turner was starting the program at Hobart, and he got in touch with a bunch of different people, and they put on a full-court recruiting um, job on me. And I drove up there with my father and uh, visited with Leonard Wood, who was the head of admissions. And uh, he said, you know, fill out the application, and if you think that this is a good place for you to come, we'll have a decision for you very quickly. And Colbert's football coach at the time, David Yurick, told me I could play football for him. Hockey coach obviously told me I'd be playing right away as a freshman. And uh, the baseball coach also showed interest. So uh, it seemed to me really appealing at the time, and that's how I ended up there. I mean, it's a... How often do you see it's almost like uh, Hobart was like a prep school, like you were a three sport athlete, but this was college. I mean, how hard was it yeah. juggling all of that? It was an easy match, but I was very fortunate. Um, coach Yurek, who was just a tremendous person, um, who was a legendary lacrosse coach more than he was a football coach, he was great to me. Uh, coach Turner was outstanding, but the teammates that I had on the hockey team in particular were phenomenal because uh, we were all the same. We were tons of freshmen and a couple sophomores that were starting the program. We were part of the first ever varsity team of of hockey at Hobart. So everybody had to kind of come together, and uh, the bonds that were formed early on, uh, I think, is what's helped make the program what it is today. Hobart's one of the better Division III now programs in the country. Back then it was Division II. So after college, uh, you ended up going to Europe and playing in the Netherlands. Uh, what, yeah. what led you there? Um, they, there's some people had seen me. I'd worked at a bunch of camps uh, all over, and, and there were a bunch of players that were from over there, um, both Germany and, and the Netherlands. And at that time, people forget, but the Netherlands were, was an Olympic country in hockey. Um, you know, they had played uh, in Lake Placid. They were part of the 1980 Olympics. So it was a, hockey was a burgeoning sport there at that time. Um, and so I... I was fortunate enough to uh, be signed by a team in Halane, which is in the southern part of, of Holland, right near the Belgian border, and right between Belgium and Germany, actually, right next to Aachen, Germany. And so the hockey was great. I had some phenomenal teammates there, Andy Tenbolt, Jamie Conroy, guys that were major junior players from uh, the Ontario Hockey League. And uh, another gentleman who passed away, David Bell, was a teammate of mine. He was an outstanding defenseman. I, I just think of all the good players we had, but that's what led me there. And then at the end of that year, I got signed by New Jersey, um, which was really cool. Let's let, sticking with the uh, European angle. I, I always say to kids these days that everyone can be their own agent and find teams over in Europe. I know I did it back in when I played over in Europe. Uh, how did you get over to Europe? And, and do you encourage kids today who are playing hockey to try to play over in Europe? 
hundred percent. It was an amazing uh, educational opportunity. It wasn't just a hockey opportunity. It was an amazing educational opportunity, Matt. What I remember from those days is um, we always played Friday, Saturdays, and Sundays, and the coach would get us Monday off, and we probably didn't have to be back at practice until Tuesday uh, afternoon around 4 o'clock. So what I would do is I would take the train. One day I'd go to Brussels. Another another week I'd go to Paris. You know, Another week I'd go to Berlin. You just go to different places, and you can educate yourself about you know different cultures and different societies that you never experienced before. So for me, it was an unbelievable op- athletic opportunity, but it was also a great educational opportunity. So you had an opportunity to, to come back over to North America and, and, and get on with the New Jersey Devils. I know you were, were did their training camp. It was at 84, I believe. Doug Carpenter was the coach, and Lou Viro was assistant. You had guys like Mel Bridgman and Kirk Muller had been the second player taken in the 84 draft behind a certain individual, Mario Lemieux. Um, Pat Verbeek, John McClain, the list goes on, Rick Mahar. Uh, what was that experience uh, like for you to, to, to be with those guys in the training camp setting? Uh, it was awesome. It was great. You know, Kenny Danico was there and played a lot of games with him um, at the time. Johnny McLean, I can't say enough good things about him. Kirk Muller came in as a second overall pick, as you said, Kurt. And what I remember the most is he was a little late getting the training camp. I think he missed the first couple of days because of a contract situation. And his first practice, he had a pretty tough time. I think it was nerves more than anything else, but he had a tough time staying on the edge because there was some, some illness that was afflicting him let's say but he's 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 such a he was such a good player and such a complete uh leader i mean they talked about kirk muller chico rest was one of the goaltenders there and eventually i ended up coaching with chico uh, up in ottawa uh, when i was coaching in the national hockey league so met a lot of people there really enjoyed it i uh, really appreciated how honest marshall johnson was with me at the time Max McNabb was a GM, but Marshall was really a big component, a big component of the training camp. And he said, we see you as a minor league player, um, and we're going to reassign you as soon as camp's over to Fort Wayne. And I just, at that time, I just, was either going to go back to Europe or try to get back into, co- or get into coaching. And I decided to get into coaching, and it really worked out well from there. How did you end up deciding on, because you went back to Hobart to coach, uh, yep. what made you decide Hobart or what, what pathways were you looking for? Cause I know what it's like here. You stop playing hockey and everyone's like, okay, what am I going to do with my life? Did you look at business careers at all? Or what led you to coaching? I almost went back to law school, believe it or not, Matt. That's a great question, by the way. I seriously thought about going to law school. I was an English major in college. I love to read. I love to write. Um, and so I was seriously thinking about doing that. But Bill Greer was the new coach at Hobart, and he was starting off with a tremendous uh, vision, I thought, for the program. And so Bill actually called me up when he saw that I had been released um, and didn't accept my assignment to go to the minors. And uh, I went and met him, and he said, we can't pay you a lot. So here's what my salary was, Matt and and Kurt, for my first year. It was $400 to coach. I had a meal ticket um, to the cafeteria at the campus. They gave me an apartment just off campus at the school loan, and they allowed me to have a car to go recruiting. So what I did to supplement my income, uh, I was a substitute school teacher where I made $50 a day, and I worked at a place called Ronnie Cedar Inn on Sundays, um, and I could make upwards of $75 to $100 those Sundays. So that's how I would basically um, build my, my stipend or my financial wherewithal to survive. Um, but it was a phenomenal year, and at the end of that year, we brought in a tremendous recruiting class, Bill and, and I. And uh, I left Hobart to go to Babson and work for Steve Sterling, and that was just the start of a love affair of coaching that I have always had passion for. That is uh, the definition of grinding, I think, you know, and, 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 and it, I think it, it's, it's so important. People, you always want to start out at a, at, a, at a certain level, and that's the, that's the natural tendency, but to start out, the way you did it and just have to do so many things must have taught you so much about what you were capable of and the importance of being able to, to, to wear so many hats and just roll up the sleeves and get to work. I think what it really taught me more than anything else is if you really believe in yourself and you trust yourself and you're prepared to put the work in, you can make a lot of really good things happen for yourself. Um, so I learned that. And the other thing is I really found out that I had this unbelievable passion to be involved in the game. And so 
it wasn't long after that, you know, I moved to Babson and I went from making $400 a year to $4,000 a year, believe it or not. And then the hockey camp started to kick in and it really became an unbelievable career. I was at Babson for three years and then the next, after my third year at Babson at the coaches convention, I was approached by six different division one schools to go be an assistant. Um, and I went up to St. Lawrence and Clarkson at the same time. And I chose to go to St. Lawrence and work for just an amazing man, Joe Marsh. And I'm so grateful for the first, the job opportunity to work with Joe. And secondly, uh, to work at a school like where hockey mattered so much and it really mattered at St. Lawrence. Was the uh, LaPerriere there as a defenseman, I remember, back then? And, and you had a lot of Mont- some Montreal connections there, which led, led you to Scott, Scotty Bowman. We, uh, uh, Joe Marsh, P.J. Flanagan, and I, um, we recruited a lot of kids. Daniel LaPerriere was one of That's them. Right. Marty La, uh, Lacroix was another one of them. Eric Lacroix, who played a significant amount of time in the NHL, was another one of them. We did have significant Montreal connections, and that's because I grew up there. Um, and so I spent a lot of time recruiting there. We, we recruited a lot in the Ottawa Valley. We recruited a lot, believe it or not, in Toronto, Matt. Uh, at that time, we were able to steal some real good players out of Toronto. And probably one of the best players we stole, uh, and I really considered a, a theft, was Greg Carville, who was at uh-huh. Hotchkiss at the time of prep oh, school yeah. in New England. He was now the head coach at the University of Massachusetts at Amherst and just a phenomenal friend. And, you know, we, we recruited some spectacular players there, and that's because hockey was so important in St. Lawrence, and those kids really wanted to come. But you, you end up segueing in, in 1990 because, uh, you know, you end up getting into player development and recruitment for the Penguins. What Obviously, you had a relationship. You developed a relationship with Scotty Bowman, how did that relationship come about, and how important was he uh, to your development? First of all, I can't say enough good things about Scotty Bowman. He's a special friend. Um, he and I were roommates for two years. Uh, we were part of two Stanley Cup winning teams in Pittsburgh. I cherish every single day I talk to Scotty. He's 88 years old. We talk almost every day. It's just phenomenal. So I'm, I'm really grateful for that relationship. It actually started because Mike Keenan created it. Uh, Mike Keenan was a St. Lawrence alum, or is a St. Lawrence alum, and Scotty was looking for a school, believe it or not, for his daughter, Alicia. And so Mike recommended it because Scotty gave Mike his first pro opportunity with the Rochester Americans. Um, Mike recommended that Scotty go look at St. Lawrence. So Scotty actually came up with Alicia, put her in the admissions office, and came over to the rink and watched practice. And I was running practice one afternoon and after practice was over, I was going into the gym to ride the bike. And, uh, all of a sudden this gentleman with a baseball hat and dark glasses comes in the office and says, uh, hi, I really enjoyed that practice. I'm Scotty Bowman. I said, I know who you are, sir. Great to meet you. Um, what are you doing here? And he told me about his daughter, Alicia and Mike Keenan recommending the school and how much he enjoyed watching the practice. He says, do you mind if I get your phone number? So I said, not at all. So I gave him my office number and I gave him my home number. There were no cell phones back then, Ben. Imagine that, no cell phones. <laughs> and um, Scotty stayed in constant contact with me, which was amazing. He was working for Hockey Night in Canada at the time. And probably about three months into our relationship, um, he was approached by the New York Rangers to be the president uh, and the general manager of the Rangers. So he called me up and he says, if I take this job, will you come with me? I said, are you kidding? I said, of course I will. So he eventually did not take the job for whatever reason. He never really shared that with me, but he said, I'm going to come back in the NHL. When when I do, I want you to join me. And the next year, um, I'm sitting on my couch after playing golf. It's late May, early June. And I see on ESPN, believe it or not, a press conference, Badger Bob Johnson, Craig Patrick, and Scotty Bowman in Pittsburgh. And as soon as the press conference is over, I'm not kidding, within three minutes, my phone rang in my apartment in Canton, New York. And it was Scotty Bowman. And he says, uh, I want you to bring a list of all the top players you've seen over the last two or three years and I'll write a report on each one of them. And I'll meet you at the airport in Toronto tomorrow. So he says, there'll be a plane ticket at the Ottawa airport for you. Pick it up fly to Toronto, meet me, and then we're going to Vancouver. I'm not kidding you. That's how it happened. So I spent the whole night writing these reports on players like Dougie Waite and 
Keith Kachuk and, you know, Yarmer Yager and my three key players that I had seen play. And uh, he and I flew to Vancouver together. We sat, sat on the plane going over every single player that I had seen and all the reports I had written on them. And then uh, we went to the Pan Pacific Hotel. I met Bob Johnson and Craig Patrick, and the next day I was hired. And not too long after that, a guy named Yarmir Yager uh, ended up being the fifth overall selection, if I'm not mistaken, by the Penguins. Yeah, that was that, the first overall was Owen Nolan that year. Second was Peter Nedved. Third was Keith Primo. Fourth was Mike Ricci. Five was Yarmir Yager. And six was a gentleman by the name of Scott Sissons, who never really played. So the five pick turned out to be pretty good. Pretty darn good. That's uh, that's uh, unbelievable. So how things come together, and it's all about relationships. And so uh, you spent a, that you, that ninety ninety one season, which really turned uh, Pittsburgh's fortunes dramatically, just in terms of a franchise. Uh, the first of of their uh, Stanley Cups, their their five Stanley Cups that they have as a franchise uh, that year. Uh, what kind of involvement did you have in the process of 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 the you know in, the, in terms of the organization that season? What what an amazing opportunity I had, Kurt. I got to tell you, um, the day I came in, Badger Bob Johnson grabbed me at breakfast at the old Vista Hotel in Pittsburgh. Now it's a Weston, and he said, "You're going to be doing a whole lot of everything. You're going to work with our players in the minor leagues, which our farm team is in Muskegon." You're going to work with some of our NHL players. You're going to work with our amateur scouts. You're going to be a huge part of our professional scouting staff. You're going to do advanced scouting when I need you to on NHL teams. It was just a potpourri of all good things hockey. And then in the final, I was there working and breaking down tape uh, with the other coaches uh, when we beat Minnesota in six games to win the Stanley Cup in 91. Interesting to me that you know the the Penguins almost didn't even get out of the first round. They they the Devils fought them to a seven game series. It was a grind, and then you know then then they the Penguins just go on that run. They end up they were in the hole to the Bruins that year too. Oh two, and they came storming back. So, what do you attribute the greatness of that team to being able to go all the way when they had their backs against the wall several times in that series? Uh, first of all, Frank Peter Angelo anybody's ever seen it um it's called the save in pittsburgh and it was a spectacular save on uh peter stastny <laughs> at a key time in a game and if it's not for that save i don't think pittsburgh wins the first round uh, but it was the greatness of mario lemieux it was the acquisition of ronnie francis uh Alfie samuelson uh who were, came over from hartford along with grant jennings that trade really helped solidify our team the role players that we had guys like troy loney jay caulfield Randy Gillen, who was such a face-off ace. I think in the Boston series, Randy Gillen won 15 face-offs in a row against the Bruins in one game. It was just phenomenal. It was an amazing performance. But the leadership of Mario Lemieux, I mean, I can't even begin to tell you, man, how special he was. To be around him, you don't coach a player like that. You maintain a player like that. And, and he basically just takes the ball and runs with it. It's just, he's a phenomenal, phenomenal person. Um, and he was a tr- just a treat to be around. Just a treat. And then uh, Scotty goes behind the bench in 92, yep. and you become a yep. full-time assistant coach behind a bench. How old were you at that point? 29. So what happened Crazy. was I was supposed to go. I met Craig Patrick um, at the airport Marriott in Detroit, and Craig interviewed me to say, listen, we want you coaching in our organization this year, not just scouting. We want you coaching. So I said, okay, um, where would you like me to go? What would you like me to do? He says, right now I want you to go to Muskegon, and I want you to run practices in Muskegon with our farm team. This was after we broke camp. So I went to Muskegon, and two days into that, I was living at the Hilton Hotel in downtown Muskegon. The phone rang, and again, there were no cell phones, and it was uh, Scotty Bowman. He said, there's a plane ticket, the same conversation. There's a plane ticket for you to Muskegon Airport. Actually, I think it was Grand Rapids at the time, that airport. I flew from there to Detroit and then Detroit to Toronto. Scotty picked me up, never told me what was going on. Um, and we went to the Leaf Buffalo Sabre game. And he said, scout it. Scout the Sabres because we're playing them in two days. And I said, what? He says, yeah, you're coming up to Pittsburgh. You're going to be my assistant coach. Nobody's to know about it. We're uh, we're going to drive down to Pittsburgh tomorrow. There's going to be a press conference, and we're going to be on the ice running practice. So 
pre-scout the Sabres and get us ready for uh, the Sabres-Pittsburgh opening night game. I'm not kidding. That's how they told me. Well, I was you know, it's, like, it's, yeah. al- it's almost like Scotty's your travel agent, leaving you plane tickets everywhere, it seems. You know? <laughs> uh, he was, he was he's amazing. Classic. He's yeah. amazing. No, I've had some interactions with him. He's, he's an amazing guy, that's for sure. Uh, but you, you won another Stanley Cup in 92. Uh, what led you to Hartford? I mean, you, you, why would you leave Pittsburgh is what I'm trying to say to you. You guys are kind of on a roll there. Yeah, you're 100% right. And I don't think I've made a lot of mistakes in my career, but I would <laughs> say that would be one of them. Yeah. Um, I was young. I thought I was Superman. We'd won two cups. I'd been trained by the very best people, and Craig Patrick, Bob Johnson, and Scotty Baum, and I'd worked with some phenomenal coaches like Barry Smith and Rick Patterson and Rick Heal. Um, and worked with elite, super elite players. So I don't know, how, I didn't know at that time how much more there was for me to do in Pittsburgh. So Brian Burke became the new general manager uh, in Hartford, and he and Paul Holmgren and Kevin McCarthy kind of recruited me. Um, I didn't have a contract after the 92 season in Pittsburgh, even though Craig Patrick asked me to sign one. He was trying to negotiate one with me. Um, and Brian Burke made an unbelievable offer to me. Uh, it was a three-year contract. Uh, with you know real good pension benefits at the time, there was no pension benefits for coaches at that time through most of the teams, and um, so I basically took the money and the opportunity of a rebuild. I was told it was going to be a four-year rebuild. I didn't know that you know it was only going to be two years, and I was going to be toast. So that <laughs> that that's kind of what happened there. But uh, you know, you don't make you live and learn. I learned a lot from that uh, experience. So I learned a lot. And it, and it wasn't though. I mean, at the time, if I remember correctly, Paul Holmgren was, was behind the bench and you were brought in to be an assistant and to kind of learn and to be a part of that organization. And then all of a sudden he's, he's stepping down and, and you're the, you're the guy, you're in the spotlight. Talk about how that was and, and what you did to, to prepare yourself for the unique challenge of your life up to that point. Well, what happened was Brian Burke came in, and I really believed in Brian's vision, and his vision was appropriate. But Brian left after nine months and went to work for Gary Bettman, who was the new commissioner of the National Hockey League, as his vice president. So Brian left, and there was major discussions with Mr. Gordon, our owner at the time, who was going to be the GM. And um, Paul decided that he wanted to be the GM and the head coach, which was fine. He deserved that. Paul's a real good hockey man. So what happened was I was the assistant GM and I started doing all the contracts. We signed Chris Pronger that year. Um, and, and, you know, uh, Mario Gosselin, I can just, uh, Pat for uh, There were a bunch of guys we got on contracts, but I spent a lot of time doing that and working with our farm team in Springfield. And then I was over in Europe, believe it or not, I was trying to get a player signed that we owned, Andre Nicolition. I was over in Europe and, uh, the phone rang and it was, uh, Kevin Maxwell and Paul Holmgren. And they said, uh, Paul's going to just focus in on being the GM. We want you to be the head coach. So I actually flew back. I turned, I think I had three or four more days left on my trip. And I turned right around and came back to uh, Hartford. And, you know, they did a press conference and we had practice. And I think the first 25 games that I was a coach were the third best record in the National Hockey League in those 25 games. And then, we got yes, we got wiped out by injury. We just got absolutely annihilated by injury, and um, that led to a very disappointing second half of the year. Hey, everyone! If you're an 07 to 11 hockey player looking to develop your skills this spring and summer, Team One Hockey is ready to assist you. Team One Hockey registration is now open for their 10 weekly skills sessions, which start on June 3rd and end on August 4th. And coming this June 17th to the 19th is the annual three-day combine camp. It features on-ice training, as well as off-ice testing and video analysis. All sessions take place at Restucci Arena in Wilmington, Massachusetts. Team One Hockey provides some of the highest levels of instruction and has special on-ice guests to provide perspective to the players and parents. There are a limited number of spots available. All sessions sold out last year. Register today at TeamOneHockey.com. That's TeamOneHockey.com to register for their 10 weekly skill sessions and three-day combine in June at Restuccia Arena in Wilmington, Mass. 
your time ended in Hartford, and I I think there was a St. Lawrence connection that got you uh, scouting with Ottawa, if I'm not mistaken. Because it I, was unbelievable. When, by the way, I when I got to when I got to know you went back then, I always thought you went to St. Lawrence because you knew all those guys. But go ahead. <laughs> yeah, no, that's true, Matt. You're right. Um, what happened was I got fired on a Friday afternoon, and um, I got a call Friday night from Randy Sexton and Ray Shiro mm-hmm. saying that they wanted to upgrade their professional scouting. And so I flew up to Ottawa and I got hired the next morning um, and started basically running the pro scouting staff there um, and working there. And it was great. We had so much. John, the late John Ferguson Sr. was there. John Ferguson Jr. was there. Mm-hmm. Barry Long was there. These were really good hockey men, really, really good people that I worked with there. And that grouping really set the stage for Ottawa to come out of probably a terrible expansion experience into really being very, very good for a long period of time. If you look at some of the players that were brought in uh, during those early years um, when I was there with uh, John Ferguson Sr., John Ferguson Jr., Barry Long, Ray and Randy Sexton. No, a lot, a lot of good hockey guys, a lot of St. Lawrence, um, you know, connections for you. Um, uh, which was interesting, but you ended up going back on the bench for a while, and and uh, and yeah, you you worked with uh, someone I knew in the USHL, uh, Dave Allison. Allie's great; he's still a very special friend. Um, yeah. I really got to know Dave very well. Um, there was a lockout, and so I spent almost four months in Prince Edward Island with our farm team there, living <laughs> living at the hotel in Prince Edward Island, and. Um, Dave was the coach, and we had some really good players. The late Pavel Dimitro was there. Lance yeah. Pitlick was there. We had some really, really good players um, in PEI at that time and a good team, a solid team. So it was a ton of fun to work with them and skate with them and, and try to make them better. And, um, you know, again, Dave did a great job. But I did not want to go back behind the bench, by the way. It's an interesting story. I was in Boston scouting, believe it or not, I into Boston. I was in Boston scouting, and the phone rang, and it was Mr. Bryden and Randy Sexton. Mr. Bryden was the owner. And uh, they said, we're going to make a coaching change, and we want you to go on the bench. He said, I'd prefer just to keep scouting and getting us players so we can really take it to the next level. And they said, no, we want you on the bench with Dave Allison. So that's what happened. And then probably 20 or 25 games later, they brought in a new GM, and he cleaned everybody out, uh, Pierre Groce. And I remember, because uh, we were friends back then, and I remember all of a sudden you pop up in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, for the Baton Rouge Kingfish, coaching in yep. the East Coast Hockey League. Uh, how did you end up in Baton Rouge? It's a great story. Um, Bob Berry, who's a Montreal guy, yep. and Mike Keenan, who's a St. Lawrence guy, called me out of the blue. Bob was the assistant GM to Mike Keenan out in St. Louis. And St. Louis, that was their uh, other farm team. And they wanted me to go down there. So I actually went down there for a year. I had an amazing group of young players. We had so much fun. The kids all got better. Shane Knighty was probably the one that was the best known. He had, I think, playing seven or eight years in the NHL. Um, And I just loved working with them. And uh, we had a ton of really good kids there, really, really good kids. Another player, Travis Scott, ended up being a goalie in the NHL with the LA Kings. So there are a lot of really good stories out of that. And then after one year, believe it or not, I was planning on going back there. I bought a house there. Uh, the Montreal Canadiens called me, Matt. And from there, it just it exploded with the media. Um, it was an amazing opportunity to go back to my hometown and work with, you know, obviously one of the marquee franchises in the National Hockey League. Was that what really drove that? Pierre, the the opportunity to go back to be to be near family, to be in the in the city you spent your formative years in, and and then just have the opportunity to to cover and 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 be a broadcaster of of what was at the time the NHL signature franchise that was only just a few years removed from their last Stanley Cup. I was seriously thinking that it would only be a one year thing. I'm not kidding you, Kurt. I thought it'd be a one year deal, and it almost was. Um, I was actually flown out and interviewed for the assistant coach's job in Anaheim by Pierre Page and uh, Jack Ferrara. And I very seriously thought about taking that job. And then I, just, for whatever reason, it just didn't seem like a great fit at the time. 
Anaheim was kind of going through some turbulation, uh, or turbulence, I should say, um, with their group. And so I wasn't sure it was the right thing. So I went back to Montreal for another year. And it just, I started writing for Sports Illustrated. I started being on the TSN panels. And all of a sudden, the media thing just started to explode. It just grew exponentially. And it, it was almost impossible to get out of it. And you were also starting a family, and you wanted to uh, build some roots and not move your family around from the which coaching you kind of had to, correct? Oh, you couldn't be more correct. I was so fortunate. My wife Melanie and I we had a little baby girl in two thousand, Justine, and then Ryan, my son, our son was born uh, the two thousand and two. So I was really fortunate in the two thousand, the summer of two thousand, TSN uh, offered me a three year contract to be a full-time employee. So I actually left the Montreal Canadiens, went to work for T- yeah, TSN. And one of the best parts about working at TSN, the people that taught you, you learn from the great Dave Hodge, you learn from Gordon Miller, you learn from Bob McKenzie, you learn from James Duffy. These are phenomenal broadcasters and you learn so much from being around them. And the, the key to this whole thing with the broadcasting is getting a lot of reps, being on the air a lot. And so one of the things that was great for me early um, TSN owned the NHL network in a partnership with the National Hockey League. So I was actually the first employee the NHL network ever hired. And so I had a chance to do so much with a guy by the name of Jay Onright, uh, who was my partner there, and then Darren Deficient, do so many reps on just breaking down hockey games and players. It was a phenomenal experience. You were a staple in the, at the NHL entry draft and the World Juniors. Um and one of the segments I used to remember is the McGuire's Monsters. And, you know, and he always used to highlight skill and, you know, how guys develop that. Uh, how, was, how did that segment come about, McGuire's Monsters? What a good question, Matt. Man, oh, man, that's good. It was actually started on a plane ride from San Jose to Denver. And the producer for our, our hockey broadcast, Gordon Miller and I were partners. Our producer was a gentleman by the name of Doug Walton. And we were sitting next to one another, and Doug says, you know what, I got an idea for a segment. I just wanted to pitch it by you. I said, go ahead. He goes, whenever we do these meetings, you always say, that guy had a monstrous mm-hmm. performance, or that guy played like a beast. How about if we name something called McGuire Monster, and you, you pick it. It's the star of the game, and how you see it. Could be a guy that's a great shot blocker. Could be a goalie that's amazing. Could be a guy that had... 20 hits and didn't get any points, but really influenced the outcome of the game. Let's do that. And I said, all right, I'm in. So the next day, I think we did a Dallas, um, Colorado game. And I believe I could be wrong, but I think Peter Forsberg was a monster that night. He was just overwhelmingly good, just phenomenally good. And it ended up being a huge staple for the TSN broadcast, but it also was a gigantically successful financial thing for the network because general motors bought it. And then it just, it became, like an entity unto itself. It was a gigantic thing for the network. Well, there was a big sea change in 2006, and that's when uh, NBC Sports stepped in and, and uh, acquired, you know, bought the, bought the rights to the NHL uh, coverage, and you had an opportunity to, to get on board with that. What was it about NBC's vision that sold you on the, you know, on, on, on you know, getting on the team and getting on board and really taking it to, to another level in terms of your, the coverage that you did for the league and the sport? Well, Sam Flood, who's a noble and Greenell man, his father ran the school for a long time. Sam was a great player there, played at Williams. Phenomenal TV person, but an unbelievable hockey man. Just, just his vision for hockey was amazing. So the way this all started in 2004, Calgary was playing Tampa in the Stanley Cup final, and I was working with Bob McKenzie and Gordon Miller down in Tampa before game five, and Sam Flood came up to our broadcast position and said to me, do you think you could ever broadcast a game from between the benches? I said, I know I can, Sam, but I'll be honest with you, I don't believe that the NHL would allow it. I really don't. And he says, you leave that to Dick Ebersol and to me. And so I said, okay. And he says, if you think you can do it, we'd like to offer you a job. And so I said, I'm ready to listen. So they offered me an amazing opportunity, and I spent 16 glorious years working for them. And I'm so grateful for the friendship. Uh, my great partner, Doc Emmerich, the first partner, was uh, 
with Doc and I was John Davidson, who was just phenomenal. And then Eddie Olchuk came in when, when JD went to the St. Louis Blues. And it was 16 spectacular years, and I'm just so grateful for those years. Really grateful. All right, let's uh, let's break down this inside the glass segment because uh, I obviously it was a staple on the broadcast, but uh, you were really able to get a real feel of what went on between the benches and the ebb and flow of a game. Uh, how special was that for you to learn the game, or not learn, but yeah, I mean you were learning as you as you went. Obviously, we're all still learning. But how, how interesting was that for you? Phenomenal, Matt. And I think the biggest thing that created such a phenomenon about the position, we could bring the electricity of a game, the interplay between the two teams, or maybe the interplay between coaches and referees, or the interplay between uh, players involved in a matchup. We could bring that energy from that position to the TV screen, something that really never happened before. And so NBC just allowed the position to flourish over time, and it became more and more creative as we went along. And the one thing that I'm really proud of is I think over time that position helped change sports broadcasting. I really believe that. Um, you saw uh, analysts going courtside in the NBA. You saw analysts going inside major league dugouts. You saw um, guys trying to do it from the sidelines in football. Um, it, I really think it changed sports broadcasting, and for the better, by the way, because the energy that happens on the field of play, whether it's on a baseball diamond or a football field or a basketball court or a hockey rink, that energy is so difficult to capture on a TV screen. But if you have somebody that's down there that can relay the electricity, it's a phenomenal experience. It really is. And NBC helped grow it, and I'm just, again, 16 awesome years there. I'm so grateful to have worked for such great Sports company, they were phenomenal. How many uh, times did you get whacked by a puck or a stick? Any injuries? Oh yeah, uh, one of the first years, I was actually doing a game for TSN between the Rangers and the Buffalo Sabers or the playoff series, and Alice Kotalik of the Buffalo Sabers and Carl Kunick of the New York Rangers, the late Carl Kunick, he passed away in the plane crash over in Russia. They collided right in front of me, and the stick came down over the one stick came down over the top of my head and split me wide open. And uh, Rip Simonic, the legendary trainer of the Buffalo Sabers, was standing right next to me. And he goes, "Petey, you're bleeding bad." I said, "Yeah, I know, I know. It's coming right through my eye." So um, he said, "What do you want to do?" I said, "Just give me a towel." And I called the truck. Doug Walton, the producer, was working. I said, "Shaky," that was his nickname. Shaky, I can't come on screen. I'm bleeding real bad, but I'm going to finish the period. So I finished the period, probably about eight minutes to go or nine minutes to go. And after the period was over, I went into the Buffalo Sabres dressing room, and their doctors um, used surgical glue and stapled me right up, and the bleeding stopped them in three seconds. I'm not kidding. It was unbelievable. <laughs> and so I asked the doctor, I've never had that before. I had been cut a lot when I was playing. And he said, never had that before. He goes, it's something that we've learned from the battlefields in Iraq. And we didn't want uh, warriors or, or soldiers to get their wounds infected. So we had to figure out a way to close it up. So they developed this compound that would help close up wounds really quickly. And that's what happened to me. It was wow. pretty amazing. And I think uh, Ray Ferraro recently took a puck and during one of the broadcasts and he just soldiered on through. I mean, he took it. He was like, oh. Uh, felt that one, and then I mean, he wasn't he wasn't bleeding like you were. So uh, maybe we won't we won't no. quite. Uh, oh, I've had, talks, I've had, talks, I've had six. <laughs> one, one of the good ones was the 2010 Olympics in Vancouver. Um, Finland was playing. I want to say it was Slovakia. I think Chara was involved in this, and there was a huge hit right in front of me. And the player from Finland came flying over the glass, and I actually caught him in midair. Because if I didn't, he was going right into the glass, like right into the cement, right behind the bench. So I caught him, and he says, his name's Kimo Tiemann, by the way. He says to me, Jared, thanks for saving my life. He says it right into the microphone. It was very funny. Do you want to skate fast? For 50 years, Laura Stam instructors have taught youth players to pros how to skate correctly, powerfully, and fast. Players who attend Laura Stam power skating programs learn how to skate fast by learning how to execute every maneuver in hockey. They become powerful, stable, efficient, and explosively fast skaters. 
If you can't wait for a clinic, join our subscription skills video service and we'll show you the skills taught at our clinics in an easy-to-use video format with training plans to guide your training. Register or subscribe now at laurastam.com. That's L-A-U-R-A-S-T-A-M-M.com. Develop your game with Lovell Hockey this summer. Whether you're a youth player or pro, Lovell Hockey has summer clinics, leagues, and college combines that are right for you. Go to lovellhockey.com today to sign up for July and August programs. Availability is limited, so register before they sell out. Pierre, you talked earlier about, you know, the family aspect. And you talked about the birth of your, your daughter and then your son, Ryan, in, in, in 2002. He ended up becoming a pretty decent hockey player himself. And you got to see that and, and, and watch him grow and, and, and develop. And he played uh, right down the road in, you know, for Belmont Hill here in, in, in prep. And he played for Fred Harbinson and with the Penticton V's, and he's now at Colgate. Can you talk about how that relationship, the relationship you had with your son, just you know, being able to see him grow as a hockey player and, and, and what he was able to do uh, to climb the ladders in his development and to where he's now a Division One hockey player in college? Uh, what I remember the most about Ryan, right from the start, um, when he was three years old, I was working a hockey camp up in Bowdoin with Kenny Martin and, and Terry Mahar. It's called The Clinic, and the Fusco brothers were there as well. And Ryan wanted to go. And so I brought him as a three-year-old, and he ended up like running the camp as a three-year-old. It was crazy. Um, and he just loved it. He was addicted to it, kind of like I probably was when I was his age. And to make a long story short, uh, we moved uh, to Connecticut in 2011. And after three years there, Ryan said to me, Dad, if I really want to be a hockey player, i got to move out of here, and i got to go to prep school. And um, I really want to go to Belmont Hill in Boston. The reason why there was a tie in there, the Fusco brothers were both legendary Belmont Hill players, and Ryan was really good friends with, you know, their children, and and uh, Mark and Scott were phenomenal, and we're just so grateful for that family friendship with the Fuscos. And he came to me when he was 13 years old. He said, Dad, i got to go, and he did. He left when he was 13, and the rest of history had an amazing experience at Belmont Hill, and even better when he went to Penticton. That was just another opportunity for growth. But the relationship for me and my son, I don't know, it's been, I'm so proud of what he does uh, as a student. I'm really proud of what he does as a hockey player, but I really like the way he carries himself in society. I'm very, very proud of him for that. So you you were a coach, obviously, uh, turned broadcaster, but I, I really think you became a player development guy uh, for young players uh, with your work around here. Um, the Fuscos, uh, Ryan, I mean, you guys were getting up at 6, 6 a.m. a lot of mornings, going to the edge and putting the work in. Uh, what type of schedule did you have those kids on and, and uh, <laughs> for player development and personal development too? Yeah, well, that's a good question, Matt. We usually, everybody had to be on the ice at 6, so you're probably getting up at 5 in the morning. Yeah. Um, there were a lot of players um, that were part of this. Uh, R.J. Murphy, who's a Harvard player. Marshall Rafai, Harvard player. Um, I could think of you know, Christian O'Neill, who played at Princeton. There were a lot of guys that joined our group over time. Um, we had a lot of different ones. And so it was a hard, you know, we skate for an hour and 20 minutes. All skill development with pucks. No uh, bag skates or anything else. Then we would scrimmage three on three at the end of every skate, um, but it was controlled three on three, teaching habits of you know stick positioning, body positioning, making sure you take away a player's time and space or create how to create time and space. So it was phenomenal. Uh, Mark Fusco, John Biotti, myself, um, we did a lot with these kids over time and um, I just I love being on the ice. You know, it's something that I, I never take for granted and uh, I always want to try to help kids get better. I really do. I always had I told you about my relationship with my football coach at, at Burton Catholic, Tony Carsich, and uh, he helped me so much in so many different ways. And I always knew that he always tried to give back, and I kind of learned from him to try to give back. But you, uh, you didn't have Ryan or or any of those kids were were playing a ton of tournaments, right? They were really focused on training and skill development. Yes. That's a hundred percent correct. 
um, there were certain tournaments that they did play. Um, I was involved with the Riley family for a long time with uh, Brett Riley and Rob Riley uh, with the Boston Generals, uh, a program that was really successful that, that Brett Riley ran. Um, so we did play some tournaments, but we didn't play a tournament every weekend. No, we probably played two tournaments a summer, but it was getting the kids on the ice and teaching them how to work. And, you know, I say to all players, not just my son, but all young players that I work with, you may think you're working hard, but you're not working hard enough. You'll know when you're working hard. And so just trying to get them to understand how hard it is to make the National Hockey League. You know, Matt, you work with somebody that's a real good friend of mine. Ian Moran. Uh, he was part of that 1990 draft. He drafted Ian when I was in Pittsburgh, and I was so proud of that pick because I had had Ian at the Europa Cup when I was working for Steve Sterling and Dick Flood. And and Ian turned out to be an 11-year NHL player. He was a phenomenal player out of Belmont Hill, and I just remember how hard he used to work, and it was a pleasure to be around him. And He's a guy that really understood that in order to make it, you just have to work your butt off all the time. Yeah, it's we had Ian on on an earlier podcast, and one of the things he talked about was uh, know what you are as a player and develop it and work on it. Is that the message that you send to young kids that you've worked with? Yeah, every player has an identity. If you're a goal scorer, you got to be a goal scorer. If you're a checker, you got to be a real good checker. If you're a defensive player, you got to be a good defensive player. If you're a two-way player, you got to be a two-way player. Make yourself the very best you can be. Play to your identity. Don't try to be something you're not. Not everybody can be a finisher. Not everybody can be a great face-off guy. Not everybody can be an elite shot blocker. Um, you've got to try to be exceptional at one thing. And if you can be, uh, that's going to enhance your ability to play longer uh, into your life. Well, it's been a terrific conversation on uh, behalf of everyone here. Certainly, I want to give uh, praise to our producer, Steve Safran, uh, on behalf of Matt uh, Matt Cater, um, guest host here, and, and, and everybody here in Milton. Uh, Pierre, thank you so much for joining us today. Well, Kurt, thanks very much for having me. Matt, thanks for asking me to come on. I really enjoyed it. I hope you guys have a great rest of the weekend. Enjoy the playoffs, everybody. It's going to be an amazing round of the Stanley Cup final. Great. Thanks, Spoke, Pierre. Spoken like a pro. And uh, until next time, we will see you at the rink. Thanks for listening to New England Hockey Journal's RinkWise podcast. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and other podcast platforms. Follow us on Twitter at NE Hockey Journal, on Instagram and Facebook at New England Hockey Journal. And subscribe to New England Hockey Journal online at HockeyJournal.com. New England Hockey Journal's Rinkwise is a Siemens Media Podcast.